Mate 40 here. We're going out live across YouTube, across Twitter, across Facebook. Whoa, where's my sound there? Across Odyssey. We're going out live across uh, Rumble. And I wanted to talk about uh, some of my favorite blog posts from 2022. I wanted to just lay down audio tracks of them. And uh, we're also talking this morning in the aftermath of the Silicon Valley bank crash, and it's affecting people I know. All right, they're losing clients. There's a steady retrenchment in tech. So many tech workers have been thrown out of work. I'm not sure where they're going to go. So many startups are going to lack funding. So I just noticed that the walls are kind of closing in on some people I know. They're being squeezed by this Silicon Valley bank crash. I'll be curious to see its effects on the wider financial system. But we'll keep an eye on that. But anyway, here's something I wrote from back in January 2nd, 2023, the new fascism. So always hearing invocations of fascism. This is fascist. That is fascist. What the hell is the new fascism? So it seems like in the West, we tend to use fascism to mean some political development that we don't like. So you hear people on the right talking about Islamo-fascism, which I think is a ridiculous term. And then we have people on the left. a war on terror and claimed without evidence that the country was hit on 9-11 because people like Osama bin Laden hated our freedom. So then we got all sorts of right-wing rhetoric about the grave threat of Islamo-fascism. So instead of looking at Islamic terror, it's primarily a matter for law enforcement to deal with, it became seen as a civilizational class. Whoa, what the hell's going on with my sound this morning? So we had people like Mickey Cow saying we should uh, treat al-Qaeda terrorism as primarily a law enforcement problem and instead of a clash between civilizations. And when you set something up as a clash between civilizations, as a clash between, you know, bad, evil, you know, evil and, and good, then it's a lot hard to find compromise. So let me try to sort out my my audio here. Looking candidates attacking Trump. So maybe it's just a little bit early, but I take your point. I think it's totally fair, actually, of the media to grill these candidates on how they feel about former President Donald Trump. And look, some of these candidates are going to need to differentiate themselves. That doesn't mean that they that they denounce Trump, mm -hmm. you know, to the end of time, but they can ask questions about electability. Also, they can ask questions about what he did with respect to the weaponization of the federal government. You know, we had these great hearings this week where independent journalists like Matt Taibbi and, and others shared 
um, all the pressure that was put on social media companies to censor speech, a lot of this happened under Trump. You know, he says, I'm your retribution at CPAC, right. but so much of this of this censorship and other policies, he was it happened under his watch. So I think well, the candidate should argue that he was asleep at the wheel and would be again if he got another term. Well, I guess you were trying out for campaign manager. Misha, <laughs> uh, watch, so when I Nikki Haley said on today, you're obsessed with me talking about Trump. I mean, he's the front runner. You have to beat him in order to get the nomination. It's not like these are highly personal questions or scandal questions. Where do you differ on policy? She's refusing to step in the mud. She doesn't want to fight. We've seen how Donald Trump fights. And quite frankly, nobody was truly prepared for it the first time he ran. And few people were prepared for it the second time. So I, I think that she is trying to stay out of the fray for as long as she can, acknowledging that now that she's in this, she has already announced. Okay, let's uh, try another time with my, my audio. Okay, want to go back to discussion here of the, the new fascism. Right. So we have Democrats now, the mainstream media and our elites uh, engaged in a civilizational war, in a civilizational war that's very similar to the civilizational war that it seemed like Republicans were trying to fight against Islam 20 years ago. But now the great threat to freedom supposedly comes from people like Nick Fuentes, which I find ridiculous because uh, Nick Fuentes does not command a sizable organization. He he commands a following on social media of generally antisocial types. So now we have the Democrats, the mainstream media, and our elites engaged in a civilizational war against white nationalism and the new threat of fascism to our democratic institutions. So given that the overwhelming majority of uh, white nationalists uh, are still law-abiding, that might be a mistake. Perhaps we should look at the extreme right and the extreme left as primarily a law enforcement issue when those extremes break the law. So instead of launching a war against Antifa or a war against the alt-right as a civilizational war, as a war against evil, maybe we should just look at it primarily as a law enforcement issue. So social psychologist Jonathan Haidt says, when you make something sacred, you cannot see it clearly and you can't compromise effectively. So for the left, the battle against fascism is a sacred fight, just as the fight against Islamofascism became a sacred fight for the deluded right. And both fights tend to leave reality and the people who engage in them become i would think less effective at navigating reality okay overthrowing the system so in 87 7 substack podcast of last year richard spencer says people are enraged against the current system those people who will bring it down whether it is january 6 or yayism or the aggressive stupidity on tucker carlson these people who feel that the world is beyond their control and they rage against it from a lower status. So, yeah, some of, some of rage comes from people of, of lower status, people who feel like the, the world is leaving them behind, that their institutions are aligned against them. And most institutions are dominated by the left. So part of that, part of that critique is you know, far from delusional. And uh, then I was listening to Eric Alterman, who's a man of the left. He tells Robert Wright that the United States is not a democracy, but it is an oligopoly. And so if you want to overthrow the system, it seems like it's important to be able to name what is the system that we have in the United States. And I don't think describing the United States as either a dominantly a democracy or an oligopoly is helpful because the United States is all those things and many, many more, right? Our current state combines capitalism, socialism, democracy, oligopoly, 
dictatorship. So when it comes to foreign policy, the, the president of the United States always says the foreign policy powers of King George III. We saw during COVID how government could uh, just do away with many rights that we'd just taken for granted, such as the right to peaceably assemble, to go to church, go to synagogue, all right, the, the right to go to work, all right, all these rights just got taken away like that. So our current state is many things, all right? It's not just an oligopoly. It's not just a democracy. It's not just a dictatorship. It's not just socialism. It's not just capitalism. So that realization of the complicated nature of the, the modern state, particularly the modern American state, it, I think, takes much of the steam out of the desire to, you know, overthrow the system. So what strikes me as much more likely than a revolution that brings America down is that these relative value, the relative value of these components of America changes. So America may become more or less democratic, more or less socialist, more or less dictatorial, more or less oligopolist, more or less capitalist. And what will call the, cause these changes? Events, my dear boy, events. When the situation changes, the state will have to change. So to survive a nuclear war, for example, Dwight Eisenhower said America would have to become a dictatorship to get through COVID you know, many basic rights had to be curtailed. Well, at least in the eyes of some people, many of our most basic democratic uh, constitutional rights were curtailed. To get through its war with Russia, Ukraine has curtailed many rights, including freedom of speech, freedom of religion. Israel sometimes called an apartheid state. So there are elements of Israel's reign over parts of the West Bank that do recall apartheid. While life in Israel proper is generally far away from apartheid, but in some places, some situations, yeah, there are things in Israel very similar to apartheid. So am I an honest person? In some situations, I'm honest. In some situations, I'm dishonest. Am I a righteous person? In some situations, I act righteously. Other situations, I don't. So everything we stand for is contingent. I stand for free speech, but in a time of war, I understand the need for censorship. I stand for the free practice of religion, but in the case of dangerous contagion, I understand there might be a case for restricting attendance at uh, social gatherings, including religious services. I believe in God, but I understand that for many people, belief in God is impossible, and they are better served by a different worldview. For other people, believing in God makes them worse. Right? For other people, including myself, even though we believe in God, we often need different words for God, such as reality, to make the, the concept of God real. So if you, like me, get tired of hearing you need a relationship with God, you might benefit from developing a positive relationship with reality instead. So if you want to overthrow the system, first of all, it helps to identify what the system is. And I think the odds of overthrowing the system or some kind of civil war in the United States right, is highly unlikely. What is likely is that the relative balance of what composes the United States will change. We could become more or less democratic, more or less capitalist, more or less socialist. The dictatorial elements in our government may become more or less powerful. So it's not so exciting to go from overthrow the system to, oh, we need a little more democracy, or we need a little less democracy, or we need a little bit more direct democracy, or we need to decrease the power of the courts and reduce their ability to, say, invalidate the direct democracy of the people, such as Proposition 187 back in 1996. Californians overwhelmingly voted for Proposition 187 to stop the state spending its social welfare resources on illegal immigrants. And then the court stepped in and said, oh, that's unconstitutional. You can't do that. So 
in in Israel right now, you have the government of the majority of the people looking to reduce the power of the U.S. Supreme Court, the Israel Supreme Court. And so that's not going to be the end of uh, democracy, right, in, in Israel, but it will change the, the relative balance of power. So if you reduce the power of the Supreme Court, you're going to increase the, the power of the parliament, which means you're going to increase the power of the people's representatives. So when you increase civil rights for one group, you often reduce, say, civil rights for the majority of the population. But uh, I noticed uh, a lot of talk about Itamar Ben-Gavir, Israel's Minister of Chaos, is an article in The New Yorker. Serial position, though. Ben-Gavir had to distance himself from the ideology that had made his reputation without turning away its ardent believers. At the memorial, he worked the room, smiling. He has a round face, wire-rimmed glasses, and a large white kippa that often sits askew. As he took the stage, his smile faded and security guards closed around him. Ben-Gavir told the audience that he owed his religious identity to Kach, but he also emphasized moderation. It's not a secret that today I'm not Rabbi Kahani. People shifted in their seats. Some began to boo. I don't support expelling all Arabs, and I won't make laws creating separate beaches for Jews and Arabs. More jeers. But of course, of course, we will work toward expelling terrorists from the country. So many of the restrictions that uh, Mayor Kahana wanted to impose, right, such as separate beaches for Jews and non-Jews, right? but most of Mayor Kahana's proposed restrictions, all right, you could find a very strong Torah basis for them, right? They came from a long tradition of Torah law, which makes very substantial distinctions between Jews and non-Jews, and generally considers it a good thing to separate as many ways as possible Jews from non-Jews. So if you think, you know, oh, Jim Crow, that's horrible, or apartheid, that's horrible, or you have significant elements of, of both of those concepts within the long, lengthy tradition of Jewish law. Right? This idea of an in-group wanting to separate itself from out-groups to protect its own traditions, its own cultures, particularly protect its own women from the you know, sexual predations of outsiders, right? this is a very common concern and, and tradition among almost all strongly identifying in-groups. Here the booze turn to applause for the character of the state, the settling of its land, and its Jewish identity. At the end of the speech, people rose to their feet, snapping photos. Still, his bodyguards had to whisk him out. News coverage of the speech centered on the signs of dissent. Ben-Gavir booed at Rabbi Kahani's memorial. For Ben-Gavir, this was a boon. The emphasis on the jeers was a step toward mainstream acceptance. But, as Reno Zoror, a journalist who has spent years covering the far right, told me, it seemed as if the focus on the booing came from him. Other okay, I want to play a little bit here from Fox News. There is a major media controversy over Kevin McCarthy's decision to give Tucker Carlson's show access to more than 40,000 hours of unseen January 6th footage, and it's produced a deep split in the Republican Party. Tucker played some of that video this week while arguing that the events of that dark day have been overblown by much of the media and the Democrats. 
The footage does not show an insurrection or a riot in progress. A small percentage of them were hooligans. They committed vandalism. You've seen their pictures again and again. But the overwhelming majority weren't. They were peaceful. They were orderly and meek. These were not insurrectionists. They were sightseers. Many detractors disagree with that assessment, and McCarthy says he simply provided the Fox primetime host with an exclusive, say, not unlike the leaks from the Democratic-controlled January 6th committee to the New York Times and Washington Post, and plans to make the footage available to all news outlets, but that still hasn't happened. Most of the media have harshly denounced the way the video was presented, as have Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and the Biden White House. But as we see in this story by correspondent Chad Pergram for Special Report, some GOP lawmakers have praised the Carlson segment, while others led by Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, have been highly critical. The January 6th committee has deliberately tried to create the impression that most folks who came here are the terrorists, and that's just wrong. New pictures showed people strolling around the Capitol sightseeing, Capitol Police even mingling with the intruders. But other Republicans paint a different picture of January 6th. There were a lot of people uh, in the Capitol at the time who uh, I think um, were scared for their lives. So uh, you can, you know, however you want to describe it, but it was, uh, it was an attack on the Capitol. It was a mistake, in my view, for... Fox News to depict this in a way that's completely at variance with what our chief law enforcement official here at Capitol thinks. As for top Democrats attacking him by name, Tucker played a clip of Chuck Schumer urging Fox to stop him from further pursuing the story. Millions of Americans tuned in to one of the most shameful hours we have ever seen on cable television. You don't often see the Senate majority leader openly call for censorship on the floor of the Senate as if that was totally normal and didn't contradict the spirit and the letter of the First Amendment, but of course it does. Now, I can understand a media debate over the word insurrection, and of course, plenty of people in that mob committed no violence. But more than 1,000 people have been arrested in connection with January 6th, including 329 defendants charged with assaulting, resisting, or impeding police officers or employees. Now, when big city violence broke out in Seattle and Portland after the George Floyd murder, many people were trying to protest peacefully, but they were totally overshadowed by the thugs who attacked police and smashed property. You couldn't call what happened in such cities anything but a riot. And that's also a fitting description of the tragedy of January 6, 2021. And now a very different kind of story involving someone here at Fox. Benjamin Hall, who was severely wounded while covering the war in Ukraine in an attack on his car that killed his colleague. Okay, let's uh, get back to discussion of uh, what's going on with Israel's new right-wing government. Article here in the New Yorker, Itamar Ben-Gavir says he's the Israel's minister of chaos. Coverage of the speech centered on the signs of dissent. Ben-Gavir booed at Rabbi Kahani's memorial. For Ben-Gavir, this was a boon. The emphasis on the jeers was a step toward mainstream acceptance. But as Reno Zoror, a journalist who has spent years covering the far right, told me, it seemed as if the focus on the booing came from him. Other journalists agreed, noting that Ben-Gavir had allowed a partial draft of his speech to leak out on social media. Last year, a supporter who was worried about his transformation approached Olmog Cohen, a Jewish power politician. It's a ruse, Cohen said, in an exchange that was caught on tape. You know what a Trojan horse is? 
Most Israelis first heard of Itamar Ben-Gavir in the fall of 1995, a tense time in Israeli history. Even as suicide bombers struck with alarming frequency, Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin signed a historic peace accord with Palestinian leaders. But the deal conceded tracts of Israeli-occupied land in the West Bank, which the right wing considered a betrayal. Protests grew violent. On October 11th, a 19-year-old Ben Gavir appeared on television wearing a pale blue t-shirt with his arm in a sling. He was holding a Cadillac emblem that had been ripped from the prime minister's car. Just like we got to this emblem, we can get to Rabin, he said. Three weeks later, a right-wing law student named Yigal Amir approached Rabin at a peace demonstration in Tel Aviv and shot him twice. Rabin died soon afterward. Seven weeks later, attorneys from the State Commission of Inquiry visited Amir in his cell and questioned him about that night. Amir said that on the bus to Tel Aviv, he had met a Likud activist who told me that Itamar Ben-Gavir wanted to kill Rabin at the demonstration. Ben-Gavir declined to be interviewed for this article, but an aide called this account false. Amir knew Ben-Gavir from right-wing activist circles, but, he told the investigators, he had laughed off the idea that he might commit a killing. He was just a kid, Amir suggested, not a murderer, but a provocateur. Ben-Gavir grew up in Mesaveret, Zion, a suburb of Jerusalem. When he was a child, he lived in a scruffy area that was once a transit camp for Jewish immigrants from Kurdistan, where his mother's family... Yeah, so a lot of people on the right either live or come from scruffier areas where they have more more daily contact and more more daily violence and aggravation dealing with with outgroups so when you grow up in Beverly Hills West LA Manhattan all right you get to have you know a more more coherent uh, cohesive safe upbringing and it's it's a lot easier than to live in an abstract world, you know, imagining reality is much more beautiful than it is. Uh, many of Donald Trump's voters are right, reality is not so beautiful. Diversity hasn't brought as many blessings. So if you're high IQ, you're living in a pretty good area, diversity will likely bring you a lot more blessings than curses. If you are living in you know, a more multicultural, multiracial area that is fraught with tension and crime, right, you're going to be a lot more skeptical about the so-called blessings of diversity. Let's get more from Howard Kurtz. Okay, Howard. Companies agreement. I'll look at both sides and give you my take. That's coming up a little later in the program. Journalist Matt Taibbi, who worked on some of the Twitter files, is now calling his former mainstream media colleagues spineless, corrupt, amoral, and an F word I can't say on TV. Elon Musk, who provided the internal documents to journalists, is objecting to a serious attack on the Constitution by a federal agency. What I'm talking about, as the Wall Street Journal reported, is the Federal Trade Commission asking Twitter to, quote, identify all journalists granted access to the company's records. And a House committee report says there is no logical reason why the FTC needs every single internal Twitter communication about Elon Musk. At a hearing chaired by Jim Jordan the other day, Taibbi used slightly more diplomatic language. Effectively, news media became an arm of a state-sponsored thought policing system. There were angry clashes, especially between Jordan and ranking Democrat Stacey Plaskett. The Republicans have brought in two of Elon Musk's public scribes 
to release cherry-picked, out-of-context emails and screenshots designed to promote his chosen narrative, Elon Musk's chosen narrative. The first FTC letter to Twitter after the first set of Twitter files, the very first question was, who are the journalists you're talking to? And you guys don't care. You don't care. Democratic Congresswoman Sylvia Garcia had this tense exchange with Taibbi. What was the first time that Mr. Musk approached you about writing uh, uh, the Twitter files? I can't give it to you, unfortunately, because this, this is a question of sourcing, and I don't give up. I'm a journalist. Can you consider Mr. Musk to be the direct source of all this? No, now you're, you're trying to get me to say that he is the source. I'm Howard Kurtz, and this is Media Buzz. Joining us now to analyze the coverage, Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief of The Federalist. And in Connecticut, Harold Ford, the former Democratic congressman, both are Fox News contributors. Molly, what should we make of the fact that a federal agency is demanding the names of journalists who dealt with Elon Musk or Twitter? Twelve different letters, because I find it really troubling. You know, we've had so much news and information coming out about how Twitter was working with federal agencies as part of a big censorship scheme. And so there is interest that the government should have in how privacy has been violated, how the First Amendment has been violated. But instead of digging into any of those things, they're going after Twitter, and they're going after Elon Musk for exposing some of this nefarious activity. It's deeply alarming, and it really speaks to how powerful our bureaucratic administrative state is. These are not elected representatives, but they are... Uh, they're doing more damage again to the First Amendment. Harold, the FTC says it's doing this in order to protect the privacy of users, despite the big layoffs by Musk, uh, based on a hundred... Not met that burden at all. Molly, this is a Biden administration agency chaired by Democrat Lena Khan. Uh, the House subcommittee report says not only is there no logical reason why the FTC needs the identity of these journalists, but no logical reason why the FTC needs every single internal Twitter communication about Elon Musk, except, I guess... It looks like the administration doesn't like Elon Musk very much. Uh, he's not, you know, he says he's a little bit to the right, but he's not obviously a liberal Democrat. It looks retaliatory for the information that has come out. You know, Twitter is just one of the many social media companies that, that controls so much of public discourse and debate. We have gone through an era where public debate has been suppressed, where very important news and information has been censored. And what these Twitter files showed was that social media companies themselves are working with, and in some cases even being paid, by federal taxpayer dollars to take part in the censorship of American thought and discourse. This is a massive scandal. It is important not just for the Hill to be looking into it, but also journalists. But it's terrifying to see how government agencies themselves are working to suppress further discussion of this. I mean, that's a very intimidating thing to do, to say, tell us which journalists you're talking to. Yeah, and, you know, the, the press used to be in favor of free speech and now increasingly seems to be want government control or at least government influence over these big social media platforms. Uh Okay, there, there's a big uh, misunderstanding. that The press is in favor of freedom of speech for itself. But when radio came along, newspaper publishers weren't in favor of freedom of speech for radio and then TV. And then when the Internet came along, newspaper publishers, uh, radio broadcasters, and TV news operations were not uh, so pleased about freedom of speech for the Internet. So purveyors of news are in a business and they don't like competitors.
So they've all wanted to discourage any any rights or competition coming from other medium. So newspapers didn't like the development of radio news. Radio news didn't like the development of TV. Uh, TV, radio, newspapers didn't like uh, the development of the internet. So it, it's not like there's this long history of uh, all these mediums just uh, supporting freedom of speech. Right? They supported freedom of speech for themselves. They supported restrictions of speech of, against their competitors. You know, Molly, um... They were so determined to make this into a big payday for Matt Taibbi, and he said, I haven't gotten paid anything for all the work I've done on the Twitter files, including travel, and that he had hired a team to help him research this stuff because it's complicated and it's a lot of uh, man hours. And so he said it was a wash at, at the best rather than a gold mine. Well, regardless of whether it had been something that right. made money or not, I mean, it's journal- a very legitimate news story. And it's something that all journalists should be taking the information that came out from the Twitter files and moving it forward. You know, I have a colleague at The Federalist who's used some of this information to dig deeper into the disinformation, you know, industrial complex that's trying to suppress news information. Other reporters have too, but not, you know, it's not led to the kind of major media reporting that you would hope for. It's also, you know, it just seems like people on the left are happy with the censorship regime, and so they want to press any discussion of how it operates and why it's a problem. Right. And it's not like these journalists are carrying out Musk's agenda. They look at the files and sometimes they say the request for suppression or deletion of a tweet came from uh, the Biden administration, sometimes from the Trump White House and sometimes from campaigns. Let me turn now to something that's gotten a massive amount of coverage. I'll come back to you, Molly. New York Times, as you know, with a story based on foreign name sources saying Donald Trump is likely to face criminal charges in the Stormy Daniels case. This is the Manhattan district attorney's probe of a hush money payment to the former porn star. And the key thing here is the report that Donald Trump himself has been offered a chance to testify this week before this grand jury, which often, not necessarily always, but often is a signal that uh, an indictment could be coming. Um, what will be the media reaction if Trump actually gets indicted on the least serious accusation against him? I mean, they seem to be happy no matter what they can do to go after this person. You had the New York attorney general run for office claiming like all she wanted to do was indict him for something, which is not how it should work in our system of government and our system of law. And she brought a civil case against his business. Right. And uh, and so they've just been going after him for all sorts of things, whether it's the Manhattan D.A. So I think reporters should care more about, you know, the legitimacy of this entire operation, whether it's good to be so political in prosecution, but they'll probably just celebrate if it does happen. Um, I don't know, th- know whether Harold will be celebrating, but I do want to read the uh, comments that Donald Trump made, among others. I did absolutely nothing wrong. I never had an affair with Stormy Daniels, nor would I have wanted to have an affair with Stormy Daniels. He always throws that in. You're a critic of his former boss, but at the time, a Trump fixer. Uh, and so the, let's say this happens. It seems to me the harder of the media hit Trump the more that the MAGA base is going to rally around him and say this is an unfair and maybe even dumb prosecution. Because this man has been persecuted by every single, you know, local, state, and federal law enforcement agency. I mean, the example just now of the classified documents, we all can see the difference between how Merrick Garland handled it with Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. I mean, there's not one standard of justice that we're under right now, and everyone can see it. And everyone also understands they're going after this person not because they think this is a crime. They're going after him because they find him disruptive. The media have hurt feelings over it. Law enforcement has hurt feelings over how disruptive he is. But that's not what we should do in this country. Hurt feelings. Well, 
he's he's very disruptive and they don't handle it well. But that is not a legitimate reason to go after someone. Um, you know, there has been, in fairness, I'll let you in in a second, Harold. I just want to throw this on the table. There have been some legitimate media skepticism. New York Times itself said a conviction is far from assured. Okay, it's an interesting question. When did the, the news media and when did academics, when did elites stop you know, supporting a, a free market of ideas, right? So it used to be taken for granted that intellectuals supported a free market of ideas. When, when did this intellectual support for the free market of ideas stop? I think it was after the rise of the internet when university intellectuals had the unpleasant experience of being critiqued by those they regarded as their inferiors. It's a bit like the press being all for freedom for themselves, but not for broadcasters. So intellectuals are all for their own freedom of expression, but not for the masses online. So as long as intellectuals were fighting their way to the top of the cultural high ground against the establishment, they needed freedom of speech. Well, once they arrived at the summit, free speech became something that created more danger for their status than protection. So when you don't have power, it makes sense to ostensibly put your principles first so people know you're not a threat to any group with power. You just believe in these abstract doctrines. But when you do have power, it makes sense to put your interests first and rejigger your principles afterward if necessary. So it seems like the default of elite intellectuals today is that we need more censorship. So I define an intellectual as someone who makes his living from his ideas. And this almost always requires subsidies. Almost nobody has ideas so compelling that they'll provide a living on their own. I had an academic uh, philosopher tell me I was shocked about 1999 when I went to a meeting in the College of Arts and Sciences. They were obsessed with the fact that a young Republicans group had invited Condoleezza Rice for a talk. They were livid. They were strategizing on how to ban her from campus, even though they had zero authority to do any such thing. This was an eye-opener for me. People who should have defended freedom of speech were violently against it. The internet vexes them more but give the people who control the major social media a lot of power to curate. So it's happened in complicated ways. At first, the humanities and social sciences were against traditional morality as conformism and religiosity. Then when the establishment pretended to be attached to it, maybe it was. So this was even extended to science, where it was okay to be critical. Science too was against these things. But with climate change, that changed for science. People came to think that criticism was immoral as a result of corporate power. Racism and sexism became a theme. Anyone who questioned was racist and sexist. Now it's transgenderism, homophobia, white supremacists. So the sphere of acceptable speech is steadily shrinking as this left-wing moralism increases. And here are some comments from 2013 on the econlib.org website. Seems like many of the people favoring regulation in the market for goods and services do favor more government regulation of ideas, such as campus speech codes and political campaign contribution spending limits. So the cynical explanation is the fact that when Ronald Coase was writing this essay, why do intellectuals support a free market for ideas but not for goods, people who wanted lots of government regulation and economic affairs felt that the good guys were in charge of that. However, their experience with speech regulation was that the bad guys were in charge of that. Prudes, super patriots, anti-black racists. So in the worldview of most educated people, the left regulated the market for goods and the right regulated the market for ideas. Now that the good guys often have the power, meaning the left, to suppress ideas they don't like, many who want lots of government regulation are more consistent about applying it also. And uh, writing on the addiction is an addiction, a mental problem that ought to be disparaged. This is a common idea among our elites. The blogger is an egotist who pours out verbiage to further inflate his own grandiosity this isn't normal speech. This is bad speech, and there's so much of it. The one 
what once might have been thought of as a marketplace of ideas is it flooded so much tainted merchandise that the government acts wisely to step in with consumer protection measures. Okay, so here are some uh, excerpts from this famous 1974 paper by the economist Ronald Coase. The difference in view about the role of government in these two markets is really quite extraordinary and uh, demands an explanation. The paradox is that government intervention, which is so harmful in the one sphere, becomes suddenly quite beneficial in the other. The paradox is even more striking when we note that at the present time it is usually those who press most strongly for an extension of government regulation in other markets who are most anxious for a vigorous enforcement of the First Amendment prohibition on government regulation on the market for ideas. And this is paper from 1974. So a superficial explanation for the preference for free speech among intellectuals runs in terms of their vertical interests. Everyone tends to magnify the importance of his own occupation and to minimize that of his neighbor. So intellectuals are engaged in the pursuit of truth, while others are merely engaged in earning a livelihood. One follows a profession usually a learned one, while the other follows a trade or a business. So the market for ideas is the market in which the intellectual conducts his trade. So the explanation for this paradox, support for free market in ideas but not for goods, is self-interest and self-esteem. Self-esteem leads the intellectuals to magnify the importance of their own market. That others should be regulated just seems natural, particularly as many of the intellectuals see themselves as doing that regulating the self-interest combines with self-esteem to ensure that while others are regulated, regulation should not apply to them. Okay. Let's get a little burst here from Fox Morning. News. This is the massive fallout continues from the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. Investors and other venture capitalists, they're calling for the federal government to step in and try and save that bank for billions of dollars. But the Treasury Secretary said that the U.S. banking system is stable and insists that she is working closely with regulators to help protect the SVB customers, but that U.S. taxpayers will not be responsible completely. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Fox News Live. I'm Eric Sean. Hey, Arthel. Hello, Eric. Hello, everyone. I'm Arthel Neville. New questions today about what led to this epic collapse. In just 48 hours, the go-to bank for tech startups and small businesses went belly up. The FDIC, which insures bank deposits up to $250,000, says customers will have access to their money by tomorrow morning. Here's Secretary Yellen earlier today. What I do want to do yeah. is emphasize that the American banking system is really um, safe and well capitalized. It's resilient. During the financial crisis, um, there were um, investors um, and owners of systemic large banks that were bailed out. We're not going to do that again. Well, is this going to cause a meltdown on Wall Street and elsewhere? Nate Foy's here following all the breaking news. Nate? Well, hey, Eric. In her remarks this morning, Secretary Yellen did not say how regulators plan to help depositors, only that they will. And she assured you just heard the public that the U.S. banking system is, quote, safe and well capitalized. That is certainly not how customers feel at Silicon Valley Bank. The FDIC promises up to $250,000 in insured deposits come Monday morning. But according to regulatory filings, over 95 percent of the bank's deposits were uninsured. 
If those investments aren't safe, it could lead to at least two big problems. Number one, if customers lose faith in smaller and mid-sized banks, experts think it could trigger a bank run trillions of dollars in size, way bigger than the bank run we saw on Thursday when customers took out $42 billion uh, from the bank. Number two, this could kill thousands of startups and small businesses. Many of them won't be able to make payroll this week unless they get help. Venture capitalist David Sachs is calling for help from the federal government, tweeting in part, quote, announce that all deposits are safe. End the crisis. It will cost very little, if anything, because SVB actually has plenty of assets to pay off depositors. The cost on the banking system and economy will be far greater if they underreact. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said on Sunday Morning Futures today he expects another announcement from Secretary Yellen soon. They are working uh, to try to come forward with uh, some announcement before the markets open. I'm hopeful that something can be announced today uh, to move forward. This bank is a unique bank where they do have assets. They have an amazing clientele. It's something that could be very possible to someone to purchase this bank. Well, former FDIC chair Sheila Baer said this morning finding a buyer would be the best outcome here. But so far, a buyer has not emerged. We'll send it back to you, Eric. All right, Nate, thanks so much. Arthel, you got it. All right, Nate and Eric, thank you. Well, for more on this, let's bring in former Obama economic advisor Robert Wolf, founder and CEO of 32 Advisors, also a Fox News contributor. So when comparisons are made to the banking industry collapse in 2008, what's your response? I think it's uh, absolutely nothing similar. Um, I was running UBS at the time. I was there uh, at the Lehman weekend. This is not going to cause global contagion. These are not the largest banks in the world globally having issues with meeting liquidity. Um, the leverage in the system is night and day. This is a situation where um, a bank took in deposits. Uh, it grew too fast. It doubled its assets in a year, even though its market cap got halved in a year. And with the assets, they went out and purchased long-term treasuries and long-term mortgages and other things and had a mismatch on their assets and their liabilities, more similar to the SNL crisis in the 80s than it is to the banking crisis of 2008. Okay, so some uh, sharp comments in the chat. Uh, Half Galician says there are no, no libertarians when their banks fail. <laughs> and... It'd be such a tragedy if uh, Haji doesn't get paid. Yeah, privatize the profits and socialize the the costs. And Rustin says restrictions on freedom is an outgrowth of class consciousness of the managerial class. So back to this great uh, 1974 paper by Ronald Coase. So why... Did intellectuals used to support free market for ideas, but not for press? So the press is the most stalwart defender of the doctrine of freedom of the press. This is an act of public service, the performance of which has been led, as it were, by an invisible hand. Now, if we examine the actions and views of the press, they're consistent in only one respect. They're always consistent with the self-interest of the press. Consider their argument the press should not be forced to reveal the sources of its published material. This is termed a defense of the public's right to know, which is interpreted to mean the public has no right to know the source of material published by the press. To desire to know the source of a story is not idle curiosity. 
It's difficult to know how much credence to give to information or to check on its accuracy if one is ignorant of the source. The academic tradition in which one discloses the greatest extent possible the sources on which one relies and thus exposes them to the scrutiny of one's colleagues seems to me to be sound and an essential element in the search for truth. So, yes, this would impede the flow of information if the press was forced to reveal the sources of the material published in cases involving a breach of trust or the stealing of documents to accept material in such circumstances is not consistent with the high moral standard and scrupulous observance of the law which the press ex expects of others but it is hard for me to believe that the main thing wrong with the Watergate affair was that it was not organized by the New York Times so New York Times has no problem and uh, other news media sources no problem with trafficking in stolen documents uh, broadcasting is an important source of news information comes within the purview of the First Amendment Yet the program content of a broadcasting station is subject to government regulation, at least much more so back in 1974. One might have thought that the press devoted to the strict enforcement of the First Amendment would have been constantly attacking this abridgment of the right of free speech, but in fact they have not. In the 45 years which have passed since the formation of the Federal Radio Commission, now the Federal Communications Commission, very few doubts about the policy have been expressed in the press. The press, which is so anxious to remain unshackled by government regulation, has never exerted itself to secure a similar freedom for the broadcasting industry. Same thing in Britain, right? The BBC wanted a monopoly on the news. The BBC did the very best they could to throttle competition. The press did not want the BBC purveying news. So... The BBC was prohibited initially from broadcasting news and information unless obtained from certain named news agencies. So it was not until World War II that the BBC could broadcast a regular news bulletin before 6 p.m. So people tend to argue for what's in their, their self-interest, obviously. And so we can't take for granted what, you know, what people say for themselves. We have to dig a little deeper. Right, let's get back to this, doggone it, this New Yorker article. I wish I could get back to this New Yorker article. Okay, while I get my act together, I'll play some Fox News. Statement like, here's 75 cents on the dollar immediately. But I do think, actually, this is a great purchase for uh, a bank to make. Silicon Valley Bank has a unique clientele. And until a week ago, it was a much stronger bank, but it was mismanaged. A suburb of Jerusalem. When he was a child, he lived in a scruffy area that was once a transit camp for Jewish immigrants from Kurdistan, where his mother's family originated. In the years before the creation of the Israeli state, she had fought against British rule with the underground group known as the Irgun. And caller, welcome. You're on the air. Okay, Elliot Blatt, you're on the air, bro. Blessings to Elliot Blatt. Uh, Elliot doesn't seem to be able to hear me. Hello. Let's, yes, Hello. what's Can going on? Sorry. Yes, yes, what's going on, bro? All right, hold on. I guess I have to get the tab off. Uh... Can you hear me now? Yes, I can hear you. Okay, sorry. Yeah, Silicon Valley Bank, you know, uh, I don't know. This could be a big story. Could could be a nothing burger. I haven't sorted it out yet. But um, I, uh, I've i always seen, I always thought it was just like a local bank, you know, like your local mom and pop bank. I didn't realize uh, that everything in Silicon Valley essentially went through it. So it's kind of stressful, my dude. 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are losing work. I mean, there are major layoffs. I think Facebook, Meta is going to do significant layoffs. A lot of tech firms are going to do layoffs. Uh, a lot of clients are dropping off uh, friends of mine. So it, it seems to have a rippling out significant impact. Yeah, the reason I think it's big is because I, um, you know, I have a neighbor in my building and I happen to run into him in the hallway and he was panicking and he's not a guy that tends to panic. And he's like, oh, it's a big deal. What my, my friend, he says to me that his friend says it's a big deal. So um, uh, it's, it's like, you know, when your barber starts talking about financial events, then it's probably, you know, then you have to start taking notice because you know what I mean? Like, as soon as it hits the person on the street, then there's like, a, you know, it, it, it could be real. Otherwise, you know, the financial industry just turns out so much, you know, gobbledygook noise that you can't, unless you're in it, you can't parse it. So, so that that's what sort of tipped my my uh, uh, my my curiosity. And I've been listening to various podcasts trying to make sense of it. And I haven't come to any clear resolution. Have you? No, but it, it uh, I'm going to I'm going to err on the side of uh, that this is that this is at least two, three, five times as significant as the Sam Bankman Freed bankruptcy. It really? seems to have many times the the implications because apparently this bank would would uh, insert a clause in many of its deals that many of its customers had to bank exclusively with it. And so that's going to leave a lot of people vulnerable. And so many startups uh, completely depend upon this bank. You know, and I I was thinking, and this is incredibly self-serving, but I think, so in my day job, my regular job, you know, I think all of our competitors, our competitors are, are much better funded than we are. And so it's very possible that their funding is tied up with SPV. And they might go under, and that might leave us standing, which would be interesting. So just to always look on the bright side, Luke. Yeah. (laughs) But we're not. We're not exposed to SPV, my my company I work for. So anyway, I'm trying to put a a silver lining on it. But exciting times. Yeah, I mean, you'd you'd think most people just take for granted that if they deposit money in a bank, that it's safe. Even right. though technically it's only the first two hundred fifty thousand dollars, but apparently ninety-seven percent of their depositors had invested money, you know, way over two hundred fifty thousand. Yeah. So, like, I heard these stories, like people, like, with ten million dollars just standing in line hoping to get it back, and, and then like, the cops rebuffing them. I mean, yeah, they, they show I'm, up to the bank to get their money, and the cops rebuff them. Yeah. But I have to say, it couldn't happen to to a better group of people. <laughs> this this city, this Bay Area, is so arrogant and so out ahead of its skis and so detached from reality. You know, if any any geographical region is, needs to have this experience, it's this one. These real estate prices are completely out of control. They're completely mismatched with 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 the earnings of regular people um you can't have a regular family in the bay area so i don't know so part of me thinks you know well let it fall but then you know the pain that's going to be felt a lot of people are accustomed to these big six-figure incomes and suddenly that shit's gone 
it's not going to, it's not going to go down well. No. And uh, that's what, go ahead. Well, so right, which raises the next question. Do you think, I mean, is the government really going to step in again and say, sorry, you're too big to fail. Here's all your goodies back. <laughs> well, well, even then the government did say you're getting all your, your goodies back. I mean, there was still significant losses and, you know, chief executives got, got removed. So it wasn't you get all your goodies back. The question is just simply what's best. There's the moral question, all right? You want to have moral hazard where people who make bad decisions are punished for those decisions. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the moral question may not be the most important question. The most important question may be, you know, what's overall best for the economy. Right. And it, and we didn't really get to have a, data, a debate about that last time. It was just assumed that it was just assumed that, you know, reconstituting the banks was the thing to do, and that's what we did, and, you know, maybe it was the best thing to do. Um, but it just shows you if a government wants to do something, it can do something, right? If yes. the government thought that the affordability of housing is a big deal for families to get started, it could do something, right? But it doesn't believe that that's something it needs to do. It just, it just shows you, you know, because... You know, the, these these conversations generally take place along, well, you know, it's all faded. It just has to happen the way it happens. You have to trust the market, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, events like this really, you know, put pain to that argument. Right. It, it shows how we, we don't just simply live in a democracy. Our, our democracy has considerable elements of dictatorship. Because as you mentioned, what happened in 2008, the, the bailout, we didn't really get he really didn't get a, a chance to, to have a voice on that. That was just government says we're in a state of emergency. We have to we have to do this. And, and it was it was done. And so anytime the government invokes emergency, real emergency, looming emergency, putative emergency, the, the government can essentially do anything. So yeah. our system definitely has elements of democracy, but it also has elements of dictatorship. And so whatever the government wants to do here, if it says we're in a state of emergency, then it can do anything. Well, did you hear how this whole thing was precipitated? Did you, did you listen to, did you want, do you know the deets on that? I, I think I do, but why don't you go ahead and tell me anyway? All right, so my understanding was that <clears throat> Silicon Valley Bank bought a ton of bonds way back, you know, a couple of years ago when, and I don't completely understand all the intricacies here, but they bought a bunch of bonds when interest rates were really low, right? And then the Fed started raising interest rates, which made uh, these bonds go down in value. So to make their uh, depositors whole, they had to sort of sell those bonds because they were losing value. And um, this sort of precipitated a snowball a sort of, that the more you sold, the more you had to sell because the price kept going down. And then rumors started circulating. So, but the, so um, it was sort of a market. So, but the market distortion, the reason interest rates were so low way back when was because of COVID and all of the money printing. And they printed all this money and they dropped interest rates to such low amounts that, that it, 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 left, it left the bank and it left the economy exposed to situations like this when we have a raising, rising interest rate environment. 
I, I'm not a financial wizard, so you know, I probably I botched that. That's why we need half deletion to come on, really straightens out. But I don't think you will. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they they bought treasuries that that collapsed in value when when the Fed started jacking up interest rates. Yeah, and this whole thing was somehow. So there was another bank failure, but it was like a crypto sort of quote unquote bank. I yeah, used, smaller crypto bank. Yeah. Like Silvergate, you know, what it must be a great bank. It's got a gate made of silver. But um, I forgot the chain of events, but something happened with crypto and Silvergate had to start covering its tracks. And maybe it was invested in uh, uh, SPV. Um, but, you know, sort of, uh, I think like the, the, the remote origins of this could be traced to crypto, which it just shows you like this crypto thing is just this layer of bullshit that's been spread across the economy. And it's just, it's, it's created, people now need these hockey stick returns. They need these completely outsized returns for them to invest. And it just created artificial expectations about what an investment is, like what a real investment is versus like this, you know, uh, speculative play that people do that's supposed to 10 X their money. And I, don't know, I think it's just all unwinding. It just feels like the big comeuppance is, is upon us. So how many people have you heard from who are in a state of fear because of what happened with Silicon Valley Bank? Uh, except my neighbor. Nobody except my neighbor. Well, my okay. neighbor's friend. Um, but that's the only person I, well, that's the only person I've interacted with that would have had a direct relationship. Um, and then when you mentioned it this morning, I said, oh, well, Luke's in touch with people. He seems to be hearing similar things. So now I'm finally starting to think this is more more of a big deal than I thought it was on Friday. Yeah, but I want to hear from the crowd. I want to hear. I want to hear from the chat. I want to hear what their thoughts are, um, because you know a lot. A lot of these property values could come crashing down suddenly. Everybody who's expecting that income has to now sell their house. They're overinflated house. They're going to have to take a big loss if they hope to liquidate it, and nobody has money to buy it with. I don't know. Fun times. And and uh, I, I don't know how how plugged into the the startup uh, world you are, but it seems like something like more than half of the startups, uh, certainly in the health technology area, are funded by this bank. So yeah, uh, I, this was news. Devastating. This was news to me. Like, um, and if it plays out, like people say that, that these companies suddenly don't have money for payroll, they have to close. If their money that they thought they, the money that they had for payroll was tied up in SVB and suddenly they don't have it, it's going to be a lot of layoffs all at once. Um, if I'm understanding it correctly. But yes. Uh, I'm on pins and needles, Luke. I'm trying. I'm, I'm searching for answers. Well, you're going to be our Silicon Silicon Valley correspondent, who's going to stay stay on top yeah. of this story for us. Yeah, like I said, and this happened in 2008. By the way, I'm always out of step with the rest of the world. So when the rest of the world's in a boom time, it's, I'm, I always struggle personally. And when the world is doing poorly, I seem to somehow always thrive. So. I have this sort of giddy excitement, <laughs> which is it, perverse. It's a little like um, America and Australia when commodity prices are low, 
usually the American economy is is flourishing and the Australian economy is in the doldrums. But when commodity prices such as for, for oil and coal, et cetera, rise, then Australia's booming and America's struggling. Mm. So that could be. That could be. Because I don't like, you know, I always miss out on a real estate boom because I always think it's a bubble and I never get involved. And then I sit on the sidelines and watch all these people uh, make lots of money on rapidly appreciating real estate. But then when it all comes crashing down, I get to, you know, silently snicker and laugh. Schadenfreude is powerful, dude. You have to realize that. And same with uh, same with cyber currencies, right? Remember, particularly in, in our space, the, the distant right space, so many people went all in on cyber currencies. Yes, yes. They're in for a painful lesson. And, and it's very funny because once you latch onto a narrative like that, you only want to hear that narrative reinforced and you don't want to hear dissent. And it, uh, I could remember, like, I've made some bad investments. And I just remember, like, not being out. I now, looking back, it's just like how in, unable I was to listen to reason or listen to an argument about caution. Um, Emanations are easy. What if there's an expression like there's nothing more intoxicating than the um, prospect of uh, undeserved money or something like that, money that you haven't worked for? Yeah. It's a really great expression. I'm, I'm botching it. I have to look it up. But it is that is very true. That, that is, you know, a lot of wisdom is encapsulated in some of the best expressions. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So I don't know. We shall see. We shall see. I'm excited. I'm excited. I like a good yeah. story. This is a great story. So I'll get on the ground. But Silicon Valley, you know, think about it. You know, I, I go there all the time and like, it's just the most um, aesthetically disgusting place that's ever been put together. Uh, it's just, um, uh, it's just these suburbs and then strip malls, suburbs and strip malls. And these and, the, and it exists in what used to be fruit orchards, like orchard after orchard after orchard, you know, and cherries and peaches and fruit, all this fun stuff. And now it's just this disgusting suburban sprawl. And uh, I don't know, I, I'd like to just see it all like replaced with trees. I get these, uh, these, uh, ecological feelings sometimes and uh, you're going to be watching the oscars tonight uh, i didn't know what was happening no I will not. that that whole institution is done it just nobody cares anymore do you think anybody cares well i think a lot of uh, people in the entertainment industry a lot of women and uh, a lot of uh, gay people care yeah exactly right Anyway, it was just a quick one, Luke. I just wanted Thanks, to bro. get my thoughts thoughts in on SDV, and uh, I'll be uh, I'll, I'll have my ear to the ground for you. Okay, thanks, man. Good All to right. good to hear All from right. you. All right, shalom. Okay, I'll go back here if I can to this uh, New Yorker article. Doc on it. Where is uh, here? Oh, come on. Here we go. Fear grew up in Masaveret Zion, a suburb of Jerusalem. When he was a child, he lived in a scruffy area that was once a transit camp for Jewish immigrants from Kurdistan, where his mother's family originated. In the years before the creation of the Israeli state, she had fought against British rule with the underground group known as the Irgun. 
His father, whose family came from Iraq, sold produce at the Jerusalem market. In time, Ben-Gavir's family moved to a more upscale, tree-lined part of town. His parents were right-wing, but they weren't ideologues. He has said that they occasionally voted for the left-wing Labour Party. Like many Mizrahi, or Sephardic Jews, they were somewhere between secular and observant. Ben-Gavir was different. He became religious at 12, and at 14, during the first Palestinian... So the average IQ of Ashkenazi Jews is around 110. The average IQ of Sephardic Jews is around 97. The average IQ of Mizrahi Jews, mean, meaning Middle Eastern Jews, is around 92. In Intifada, he was radicalized. There was one murder after another, and I went to my mother and told her, this must be solved. He said last year... In so the Ashkenazi Jews in Israel have typically voted left, so they're moving much more towards the center. And uh, Sephardic Jews and Mizrahi Jews in Israel have consistently voted for the right. An interview with the news site Mako. One Friday, he asked his father to drive him to downtown Jerusalem, where a demonstration of leftist women convened each week. There, he formed a counter-protest of one. But he had made a rookie mistake. The women habitually dressed in black, and Ben-Gavir had worn black, too, so he was obliged to call his father for another shirt. Before long, though, he met Baruch Marzel and another Kach agitator, who introduced him to the movement. At first, I thought they were too extremist for me, but at one point I realized, wait a minute, this isn't what the media portrays, he said. Those who knew Ben-Gavir as a teenager recall an intelligent, charismatic boy with an easy smile. One school friend said that he was a bit of an outsider, but added, using a term that denotes aggressive behavior, there were much scarier Arsim than Itamar. Ben-Gavir attended a vocational high school in Jerusalem, where a former teacher remembered him as serious and engaged, sitting in the front row like he didn't want to be disturbed. His affiliation with Koch was known at school, the teacher added, but it wasn't unusual. Most students came from very right-wing families. Ben-Gavir's ambition made him an outlier among the Kahanists. Most of them are parasites, Kariv said. They get up at noon, they don't study, and they don't work. Ben-Gavir was always very driven. Over time, he began recruiting others to Kach activities, which Kariv said ran mostly to vandalism. Spray-painting Kahani was right, and Arabs out on buildings across Jerusalem, sabotaging water heaters on Arab families' roofs. A former Koch member told me that recruiting for the organization peaked in the... So a lot of these people, I think, would just, you know, enjoy committing criminal activities. So when, you, when you're recruiting from this kind of crowd, you're not exactly recruiting high-quality people. Aftermath of violent attacks. Say there's a bombing and you hear someone yell death to Arabs. You come up to him and ask, want to join us? Ehud Olmert, who was Jerusalem's mayor at the time, told me, Ben-Gavir belonged to a group that thrived and blossomed on the backs of those murdered in terrorist attacks. Once, after an attack in the Jerusalem market, Ulmert was touring the scene when three men began to stalk him, shouting, death to Arabs and cow... There's no inherent reason that it's uh, superior to have your group uh, triumph from prosperity than to have your group triumph from adversity. Right, just because this group uh, gained prominence as a reaction to Arab Islamic terror attacks on Israel does not in and of itself discredit it. 
right? Much of life is hard. Much of life is adverse. And having a group that, you know, grows in response to adverse events, right? That's not disqualifying to that group. One of them was Ben Gavir. Olmert said that he turned and punched him in the face. At 16, Ben Gavir became a fixture at Kahani's Jewish idea yeshiva in Jerusalem. When I mentioned Ben Gavir's student days to the former Koch member, he laughed and said, it's not that kind of yeshiva. There, a rabbi named Yehuda Kreutzer imparted the tenets of Kahanism. That the idea of coexistence with Israel's Arab population, which makes up 21% of the country, is, as Ben Gavir puts it, Babel. Kahani, there's no coexistence with cancer. That Jewish women should be saved from Arab men. Kahani, the incredible pollution of the sacred Jewish seed. And that the path to solving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is an exchange of populations. In other words... Palestinian expulsion from Greater Israel, territory that includes the West Bank and East Jerusalem. While Ben Gavir's old high school classmates served in the Israel Defense Forces, he stayed at the yeshiva, absorbing extremist ideas. The army had refused to conscript him. There are only very few that we don't recruit, a former senior defense official told me. Why not Ben Gavir? I asked. The official stared at me and said, Give someone like that a weapon? As the new minister... And a question from the chat. Do people in Australia ask me about my sacred Jewish seed? But I think every strongly identifying in-group regards its seed as sacred and looks askance at uh, out-groups plundering their women, right? This is not something unique to Jews. ...in charge of supervising Israel's police force Ben Gavir oversees a special operations unit tasked with breaking up armed riots. For many Israelis, this is alarming. In one poll, 46% of respondents described him as unworthy of such a sensitive post. But Ben Gavir's performance in last year's election was strong enough that Netanyahu granted him an expanded portfolio, which includes broad responsibility for national security and authority over border patrol units in the West Bank what the departing defense minister, Benny Gantz, called a private army. In 2021, Ben Gavir returned to his old yeshiva for... So when do you get private armies when the official army isn't doing the job? Day. Rabbi Kreutzer used to tell us students that one day we will reach positions of influence, he told a crowd of students. For years, they delegitimized us. They presented us as a bunch of haters, delusional, crazy... They distorted our positions, lied, and cheated. But slowly, over time, I saw how their attitude toward us changed. Maybe it's social media, which the press couldn't ignore. Suddenly, the Israeli people are exposed to us. That, gentlemen, is amazing. Seculars, religious people from the south and from the north, Ashkenazim and Sephardim, Haradim who study and Haradim who work, Everywhere we went, we were wrapped in love. To many observers, the growing acceptance of Ben Gavir and his allies has more to do with the rise in populist outrage and with the weakening of Israel's left wing. In 1977, after years of labor rule, Likud came to power for the first time. Its prime minister, Menachem Begin, balanced ardent nationalism with respect for the judiciary 
and a generation of conservative politicians followed his example, including Netanyahu, who joined Likud in 1988. But Netanyahu soon began to capitalize on increasing hostility to what he called the elite, leftists, judges, academics, the press. After Rabin was killed, the... Wait, what he called the elite? They are elite. Israel is long being dominated by a left-wing Ashkenazi elite. All right, elites are real. Elites matter. Elites dominate civilization. The accord that he had signed fell apart. As Jewish settlements in the occupied West Bank grew, so did the incidents of Palestinian terror attacks. And, and Hafkalishan notes that uh, too long didn't read a summary of this New Yorker article. Itamar Ben Gavir successfully expanded the Overton window, including to include a refined version of Kahanism that uh, Likud had banned in 1984 because they didn't want to have to compete for Mizrahi voters. Increasing number of centrists began to agree with the right-wing argument that there is no partner for peace. With the rise of social media, the divisions only deepened, or at least became more visible. In one recent poll, 22% of Israelis reported hating left-wing voters. Ben Gavir made an early career of stoking that kind of hatred. As a young Kahanist, he... Okay, that kind of hatred of the left is not created by politicians such as Itamar Ben Gavir. It comes from facts on the ground. All right, when you see a left wing elite dominating your institutions and organizing your society in a way that you feel puts your society in peril, then it's normal and natural to hate your enemies. All right, if you love anything, you're going to hate those who threaten it. So, hatred for the left. Just like hatred for the right is not something that's created by demagogues. It's demagogues who can play to and increase the intensity of hatreds that are already there. People weren't born yesterday. We did not evolve to be gullible. We're not uh, just easily manipulated by these smooth talkers. Heckled stage actors known for leftist views and handed out eggs to throw at marchers and gay pride parades. For Purim, he would dress up as Baruch Goldstein the Hebron mass murderer. In 2011, he invited the press to a public pool in Tel Aviv, where he appeared with 40 Sudanese migrant workers. He bought them all tickets to enter the pool, and while cameras rolled, handed them swimsuits. I want all the pampered Tel Avivians to understand that if we give human rights to the Sudanese, they will come here, he told reporters. Laughing, he called out to the migrants in English, swim, swim. He has been surprisingly frank about the purpose. Okay, that that was a pretty pretty good uh, prank. That was that was, that was like uh, Ron DeSantis sending illegal immigrants to Martha's Vineyard, right? Bring these illegal Sudan Sudanese uh, invaders and uh, drop them off at this you know affluent you know left wing Ashkenazi uh, pool and uh, yeah let let them let them enjoy the pool. With all these illegal immigrants. Of his agitprop. I used Koch summer camps and Rabin memorials so that you would come and interview us, he told an Israeli media watchdog publication in 2004. The ideology itself you would never cover. Ben Gavir has spent years cultivating journalists who. Yeah, that's a great point. Generally speaking, it's very difficult to get news media to cover your ideology, but uh, you, you bring 40 illegal immigrants 
and you damp them off at a Tel Aviv Ashkenazi uh, left wing uh, swimming pool, all right, or you fly illegal immigrants to Martha's Vineyard, then the media is compelled to cover something that they would otherwise prefer to ignore. In the Jewish settlements, becoming what one described as their pet extremist. He keeps a notebook with a running tally of reporters and the news items he feeds them. Chaim Levinson, a longtime journalist for Haaretz, told me, when you are pressured by your news desk to find a hilltop youth, a nickname for the most hardened settlers, you call Itamar. Last year, during a wave of deadly attacks, Ben-Gavir received... So Itamar Ben-Gavir has played a role in the Israeli news media, similar to what Richard Spencer has played in the American news media over the past seven years. More screen time on television than any other Knesset member, except for the prime minister. Ben-Gavir was always more aware that it was all kind of a show, Mikhail Manikin, a veteran left-wing activist, said. Many Israeli liberals took this to mean that he was not an ideologue, Manikin added, but the fact that he could joke with you didn't make him any less dangerous. When Ma okay, so it's a similar, it's a similar mode to the, the alt-right, uh, prior to the alt-right running off the tracks in November of 2016. So the alt-right used to be known as a bunch of merry pranksters. It was a fun-loving, funny, you know, prankish group of, of people, just like Itamar Ben-Gavir, all right? He ran, you know, a funny, pranky, uh, you know, compelling events that, uh, you know, just grabbed the attention of the news media, uh, created clicks, right? Something that fit in with the business model of the news media. Also, he got it to align with his interests. So this is fairly savvy political campaigning and the alt-right was able to do it up until about November 2016 when Richard Spencer ran it off the ran it off the rails now Itamar Ben-Gavir has done it much more successfully than the alt-right in America he actually has real political power Anakin brought groups to tour Hebron Ben-Gavir regularly showed up to confront them he would throw eggs and curse and yell at us Manikin said and then, when the tour was all over, he would come up to me, smiling, and ask, So, when are you coming again? This past December, I flew to Europe to meet Gilad Sadeh, who was raised by Tiran Pollock, Ghani's right-hand man, and served for years as one of Ben-Gavir's closest confidants. On the phone before our meeting, Sadeh asked that I not reveal his exact location. He hasn't visited Israel in four years. Okay, so when you make confidants and you are a dissident political movement or you're a dissident social movement or you're just in a dissident stream such as pornography, right, your confidants like you are going to face all sorts of incentives to go mainstream, to join polite society, right? Most people feel the tug of joining polite society. So you're a dissident, you confide in your fellow dissidents, but you're this is the, the prisoner's dilemma, all right? You'd all be better off if nobody talked, but the incentives are so strong to get mainstream respectability is to, you know, come out and condemn your, you know, the, the, the dissidents that you used to pal around with. If I set foot in Jerusalem, they will break my bones, he said. They, he explained, were former Koch members who now belong to other branches, including the anti-assimilation group Lahava, founded by Bensi Gopstein, a Kahanist whom Ben-Gavir considers a dear friend. 
Gopstein declined to comment for this article. Sade and I met in a basement cafe. He arrived looking like one of thousands of Israelis on their post-military trip around the world. Shaggy curls, stubble, hiking clothes, a raffish earring. There were no indications of his former life. The large knitted kippah and long side locks that typify West Bank settlers. I asked Sade how long he had known Ben Gavir, who is a decade older than he is. Since I can remember, he said. He was like an older brother to me. Ben Gavir was also his boss. He used to pay Sade and other teenage boys about $60 for a full night of spray painting slogans. Sade said that he. Uh, I just thought of a good title for today's stream. We'll call it the the fall of the Silicon Valley Bank and uh, the, the rise of the new fascism. There, we got something symmetrical. Well, Republicans are wary that President Biden has not yet signaled if he will sign a bill to declassify the report on the origin of the coronavirus. The House followed the Senate and passed it unanimously Friday, a 14, 419 to zero vote. Here to weigh in is New York Congressman, Republican Congressman, Nicole Maliotakis. She is also sitting. Sits okay, I think we'll... Skip that. Let's get back to the New Yorker. Encourage such extracurricular activities as slashing car tires and smashing windshields. Ben Gavir denies this. Most of the action took place in Arab neighborhoods in East Jerusalem and Hebron, but occasionally the boys rented a car and went from city to city on a binge of vandalism. Sade played me a recording in which a man who remains close to Ben Gavir confirmed that Ben Gavir had paid him too for graffiti when he was a teenager. When we talked about money, Itamar used to say that all he had gotten in exchange for working for Bensi was a shawarma, the man joked. I am withholding his name because he was a minor at the time. Sade told me that shortly after his bar mitzvah, Ben Gavir sent him to spray Kach graffiti in a central intersection in Jerusalem. He was arrested and brought to a police interrogation room downtown. But when he gave the interrogator his name, he was told... There's no Gilad Pollock in the system. The interrogator thought that he was being uncooperative and started beating him. That was when Sade learned that Pollock was not his birth name. He had been adopted. His biological father was Palestinian. He discovered later that a fundraising video had circulated within the Kach movement, showing him as a three-year-old held by Rabbi Kahani. In the video, Kahani tells an American donor... Nothing can prove the importance of what we're doing more than this little boy here. He could have been throwing rocks now at Jews if we hadn't taken him and his mother away from an Arab village. The donor, a biblical archaeologist named Vendel Jones, can then be seen handing Kahani a check. Ben-Gavir showed the video at the annual Kahani Memorial as recently as 2017. The news about Sade's origins radicalized him even further, and he dropped out of school after the ninth grade. Suddenly, you have 20 police files for graffiti, 20 police files for destruction of property, he said. Ben Gavir, he added, took advantage of his eagerness. In 2001, Hezbollah declared that it had a video documenting militants' capture of three Israeli soldiers a year earlier. The United Nations also had video relevant to the kidnapping, but initially refused to hand over an unedited version to Israel. Many on the Israeli right were furious. 
One night that summer, according to Sade, Ben-Gavir told him to get a ski mask, then drove him to a UN base in East Jerusalem. Ben-Gavir dropped him off around the corner and handed him a wire cutter, indicating where he could breach the fence without getting caught. He sent me to fucking break into a UN base in Jerusalem and destroy their cars, Sade told me. I was fucking 14. I could have been killed. An aide to Ben-Gavir said that Sade... So, 14-year-olds have agency, all right? <laughs> you volunteered, bro. This is something you wanted to do, all right? You, he wants to portray himself as just some innocent 14-year-old kid. 14-year-old uh, kids, you know, know, know right and wrong. Sade fabricated this account out of personal animosity. Inside the compound, Sade says, he punctured the tires of every car he could find and spray-painted slogans, UN out, and Kahani was right. He emerged to find Ben-Gavir waiting in his battered car, acidic music blasting from the speakers. No, 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 he asked Sade, energized. Kariv, the former Shin Bet official, could not confirm the break-in, but said that it sounded like classic Edomar. The Kahanists kept themselves at a distance while miners did the dirty work. They were very aware that for us to interrogate a miner is much more complicated, he explained. Yet Kariv sounded almost charmed by his former target. I really appreciate where he came from, how hard he worked, and where he's going, he said. It wasn't the only time I came upon this dissonance. People who spoke about Ben-Gavir's overt racism were just as eager to talk about his charisma, basic niceness, and work ethic. Yeah, you get a lot farther in life if people tend to like you, right? And charisma means that you simply you give people energy. When people tune into you, when people meet you, when people listen to you, they get energized. And so that's a tremendous gift because a lot of people are listless. So uh, Richard Spencer has been able to turn on the charisma at times. It's uh, indispensable for, for getting ahead in life. It's hard to get anything done without energy. And you get energy by giving it to other people. They're giving it back to you. And so you form a virtuous circle. So Itamar Ben-Gavir, right, he's moved ahead, not just on the basis of pragmatically appealing to a certain subset of Israelis' interests, but also by being a fun, energy-giving dude. It really helps to be nice and to be fun and to create energy wherever you go. Years later, Kariv ran into Ben-Gavir at a television studio and congratulated him on the recent birth of his child. Ben-Gavir was taken aback. You Shabakniks know everything, he said using a common term for Shin Bet agents. Kariv pointed at his arm, where there was a wristband from the maternity ward. Both men laughed. Sade worries that Ben-Gavir's superficial affability has distracted many Israelis from the danger that he presents. From everything I know about Edomar and Kahanism, the goal is very simple. It's to sow chaos. Sade, who left Kach more than a decade ago, now works as a reporter in places like Ukraine and Kosovo, filing stories for Israeli radio and for international news sites. In 2014, he uncovered some startling information. While appearing in a film about his life, Best Unkept Secret, he learned from his mother that the story of his birth featured in the fundraising video had been a hoax. Sade's father was not Palestinian, she told him. She was never saved from an Arab village. She had been a young single mother from a traditional home, and her mother had pressured her to seek help from the Kach movement. Once there, she had been coaxed into making a promotional video extolling the movement. 
They exploited her and they exploited me, Sade told me. Beyond being dangerous, these people are sophisticated. They've learned how to keep their own hands clean while leaving scorched earth under the feet of other people. Two weeks after the recent election, Netanyahu's wife, Sarah, invited the wives of the incoming coalition leaders. Well, isn't that what most uh, successful activists and uh, politicians do? They don't want to get their own hands dirty, right? They, they delegate the dirty work to underlings. Uh, plenty of presidents of the United States have employed similar strategies. It's not just something that's done by, you know, the, the dastardly far right. All of whom are men, to brunch at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in Jerusalem. A photograph of the event spread on social media. The Netanyahus are secular, but... How do Kahanas typically view converts the same as regular Jews? If they view you as an asset, then they'll be well disposed. If uh, they view you as untrustworthy, then obviously they'll be negatively disposed. So th there may be some skepticism, but uh, Jews, Jews get to form a fairly accurate perception of you if they interact with you on a day-in, day-out basis. So if someone shows up every day, someone do does what they're supposed to, someone's an asset to the community, someone donates money, someone you know carries their load in the community, someone volunteers, someone lives up to their word, right? someone who's got special skills, unique skills, needed skills, all right? That, that type of person is going to be valued in the community. Someone who is psychologically unstable, someone who is uncomfortable to be around, someone who doesn't pull their weight, right? Someone who just takes and doesn't give, right? Nobody's going to like that type of person. Sarah's guests were all religious and had on long skirts and hair coverings, making them a distinctly unrepresentative sample of Israeli society, in which the ultra-Orthodox and national religious sectors represent roughly 30% of the populace. The image also went viral for another reason. Ben Gavir's wife, Ayala, was wearing a pistol in a holster that was visible over her skirt. Ayala, who is 35, tweeted later that day, I live in Hebron, mother of six sweet kids, travel through terrorism-ridden roads, married to the most threatened man in the country, and yes, I have a gun. Deal with it. There are, according to the Shin Bet, two things that tend to mellow extremists, military conscription and marriage. So uh, most people in Israel are encouraged to have a gun around, right? So the more dangerous your situation, right, the, the wiser it is to have a gun around, particularly since the majority of the Israeli population has gun training, has served in the IDF in some capacity, and Israel is an armed and largely safe society. Lots of people carrying guns, uh, very, very low rates of murder in Israel. Ben Gavir skipped conscription, and he married someone even more radical than he was. Ben Gavir met Ayala Nimradi around 2002, when he was 26 and she was 15. She was one of a handful of girls in the Koch movement, and she was a devoted adherent. I happened to see a leaflet of Kahani, read it, and found many answers. She told the news site, Why Not? About a year after their meeting, she was arrested while occupying an illegal outpost in Hebron. And when she refused to sign the terms of her release, Ben Gavir showed up to cheer her on in court. They were married the next year. He told her, 
I can't promise you flowers and roses, but arrests, protests, and press. In the Ynet interview, published a month after their wedding, Ayala was asked what she foresaw in the coming year. She replied, I wish that, God willing, next year the land of Israel will all be ours, that we will continue to conquer it, and I mean the two banks of Jordan and South Lebanon, that we will get rid of the Arabs and deport them at long last, that whoever needs to get the death penalty there will. The Ben Gavirs moved to Kiryat Arba, where they found a house at the settlement's disputed fringe, an area of old Hebron that Israel kept under military control. Some 800 Jewish settlers lived there, guarded by more than 600 soldiers, 22 checkpoints, and a barbed wire fence. With a history of stabbings by Palestinians and drive-by shootings along the nearby highway, it is among the most dangerous places in the West Bank. Yet when Ben Gavir drives around the neighborhood, he keeps the windows open to make it clear to them. Okay, so what people will live in, in the most dangerous neighborhoods, right? Like the West Bank, only those who are particularly dedicated. What type of people are going to be particularly dedicated, right? People with moderate views? No. Extreme levels of dedication, extreme levels of commitment, extreme levels of willingness to sacrifice don't go hand in hand with a moderate, disinterested, unbiased perspective on life. To be willing to live in such dangerous conditions, to be willing to sacrifice for a greater cause, right, requires a belief above and beyond the the rational it requires a deep emotional attachment he once told an interviewer about 220,000 palestinians live next door various places in the west bank yet when ben gavir drives around the neighborhood he keeps the windows open to make it clear to them who the landlord is he once told an interviewer about 220,000 Palestinians live next door in an area of Hebron controlled by the Palestinian Authority. But in Ben Gavir's part of town, Palestinians are forbidden to drive on many of the roads and are barred from even walking on streets that are designated sterile. So why would you use such extreme ethnic cleansing? Because <laughs> you have a conflagration on your hands, all right? when you have extreme levels of enmity between groups, right? When you have the potential for violence breaking out any time, right? It helps to separate the warring parties. So it's for reasons of self-interest and trying to create some degree of safety that uh, they create Jews-only streets, Jews-only communities. When I visited the area recently, a poster at the entrance to the Cave of the Patriarchs announced, it's Ben Gavir time. I was walking with a Palestinian activist named Isa Amro when an Israeli soldier warned him not to tread on the path reserved for Jews. Finally, the soldier allowed me to join Amro on the Palestinian side, which was unpaved and strewn with garbage. When people talk about Israel being an apartheid state, it's this kind of image that comes to mind. The reality is that Hebron is an outlier even by the standards of the Israeli occupation, it is the only Palestinian city with a Jewish settlement at its center. The concern among opponents of the new government is that Ben Gavir and other ultranationalists will bring about what Amro calls the Hebronization of the country at large. Amro is 42, a lifelong resident of Hebron. So is it uh, Itamar Ben Gavir who's going to you know, bring out this extreme polarization? Or is it the extreme polarization that 
raises to prominence people like Itamar Ben-Gavir. So I am much more of a structuralist than an individualist. I think that the structure of societies and the structure of events is what uh, you know causes certain people to rise or fall in power. So I think Itamar Ben-Gavir is much more of a symptom of the facts on the ground of living in Israel than someone who is orchestrating polarization in Israel. When he was a child, the city's main thoroughfare, Al-Shuhada Street, was so bustling with shoppers that my father had to hold my arm when we crossed. Now our footsteps echoed as we walked down the middle of the street. After the Goldstein Massacre in 1994, 1,200 Palestinian-owned shops and market stands along Al-Shuhada and the nearby streets were shuttered by military order. For weeks afterward, the air reeked of fruit and vegetables left behind by the merchants. Things have been desolate ever since. Hostilities towards the Palestinians used to stem mostly from the settlers, Amro said. But since the last election, Israeli soldiers and police officers have been increasingly aggressive. Ten days before my visit, two soldiers stopped... So, where do you think the police have been so aggressive? Maybe it has something to do with, you know, Palestinians killing Jews or injuring Jews, right? <clears throat> police violence, police distrust, police aggression doesn't just happen out of nowhere, right? So when Palestinians act, the Israelis react. When the Israelis act, the Palestinians react. So these, these postures don't just uh, come out of the blue. A group of Israeli peace activists who were touring the area. One of the soldiers tackled an activist, punched him in the face, and cocked his firearm against the man's back. Amro was there and filmed the incident. Ben Gavir will tidy up this place, the other soldier told him. You're screwed. Last week, a soldier confronted Amro as he talked with two foreign journalists and ordered him to delete a video of their exchange. When Amro declined, the soldier grabbed him by the throat, threw him to the ground, and kicked him. In December, Ben Gavir proposed a bill that would give soldiers immunity. So when someone with a gun is telling you to do something, particularly someone with duly constituted authority, such as a policeman, it's a really good idea to cooperate. Immunity from prosecution. Not long before, he had waved a pistol at rioters in Jerusalem who hurled stones near him. He told soldiers at the scene, if... All right, someone who's throwing stones at you could very well kill you. So... Waving a pistol seems to me like a quite a reasonable response. They throw stones, shoot them. Netanyahu has little tolerance for lawmakers who are seen as insufficiently loyal, but Ben Gavir treats him with deference. Ben Gavir admires him for real, Crombie, the former campaign strategist, told me. Last summer, Netanyahu summoned members of the hard right to an informal summit in Caesarea, where he lives. While four of Ben Gavir's children splashed around in the pool, Netanyahu hashed out the terms of an alliance between Ben Gavir and the leader of religious Zionism, a settler named Bezalel Smotrich. The two men were supposed to be the winning team of the right of the right camp, Crombie said. Smotrich. Why are so many Israelis against their own people? Or you could say that, why are so many Americans against their own people? Why are so many English or French or Germans or Swedish against their own people? Well, for people on the right, generally their greatest loyalties are to their own tribe, to their own community, to their own people. Uh, people on the left 
tend to have more abstract loyalties and leapfrogging loyalties. So traditional loyalties go in concentric, concentric circles. Your first loyalties are to yourself, to your family, to your extended family, to your friends, your community, your city, your, your nation, your, your tribe. But uh, people on the left have leapfrogging loyalty, so they may feel loyal to their family, and then their next greatest loyalty is to people in Africa or people in the in the Middle East. So they have all these leapfrogging loyalties. So is your greatest loyalty to abstract principles, which I notice with many intellectuals who are dominantly on the left, or are your greatest loyalties to concrete people, right? People on the right tend to have loyalties primarily directed towards, you know, concrete people, a concrete nation. People on the left, particularly intellectuals, tend to have loyalties primarily directed towards abstract principles. Who calls for the annexation of the West Bank and who once said that maternity wards... So why are so many Israelis against their own people? Because they see, you know, certain values as higher than the well-being of their own people. So if they're on the left... Right, they will likely react quite negatively to the whole idea of having a ethnic state. Right, people, people on the left don't believe in ethnic states, and so that's going to rub them the wrong way. Sounds like a big number, and it is, but it's really a cut to defense when you factor in high inflation. Many want to see U.S. forces grow to handle what officials say is a growing Chinese military akin to what we saw in 1930s Germany. It's, the budget is also going to increase taxes on those making over 400 grand, and there's going to be a 25 percent minimum tax on billionaires. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy appeared earlier on Fox's Sunday Morning Futures. This budget talks more about equality and climate change than it does dealing with China, dealing with fentanyl, dealing with putting our workforce back in the workplace. That is a... Okay, so Israelis who are left-wing, right, normally, naturally, you would expect them, if they are consistent with their own principles, to be opposed to the Jewish state of Israel because they don't believe in ethnic states. Now, it's not so much that they are self-hating Jews, but that they have loyalties that are more important to them than their loyalties to Jews and to the Jewish state. The chat says the people of Israel are just as much victims to this global liberalism and demand for open borders as everyone else. Well, yeah, particularly the Ashkenazi, generally left-wing leaning elite. Okay, back to this New Yorker article. Israel should be segregated. Attracted Kippa wearing Ashkenazi businessmen in the suburbs and the settlements. Ben Gavir appealed to observant voters in Israel's development towns and mixed cities. But the alliance was only a tactical one, and soon after the election, the two parties split. The problem, reportedly, was ego. Smotrich demanded to be the alliance's official leader. Ben Gavir felt condescended to. Crombie, who was friendly with both men, said that Smotrich had spent years positioning himself as the new elite of an educated, unapologetic religious nationalist camp and didn't know what hit him when Ben Gavir's popularity began to rise. Smotrich represented the subtler contingency. Yeah, concentric loyalties, which people on the right tend to have versus leapfrogging loyalties. I think it was, it was Steve Saylor that I, I read this description from. So... Leapfrogging loyalties mean that your your loyalties leapfrog, you know, past your family, past your community, past your people, past your nation, to you know, persecuted LGBTQ personalities in 
uh, on the Gaza Strip or in, you know, Uganda, right, or in Zaire or the Uyghurs in China, while for people on the right, their loyalties tend to be concentric, starting with themselves and then extending out to family, extended family, friends, community, and nation. A highly organized electoral bloc. He felt, Crombie said, that Ben Gavir dragged him to the fringes of society. Imagine a union with the Tea Party and the Proud. Okay, Ben Gavir didn't drag anyone to the fringes of society. People who are already marginalized will then become much more open to marginalized movements. Right? It's not uh, these dangerous right-wing demagogues who are driving people to the fringes of society. People who are already on the fringes of society going to be much more susceptible to signing on for some dissident cause. Back to the New Yorker. Crombie, who was friendly with both men, said that Smotrich had spent years positioning himself as the new elite of an educated, unapologetic religious nationalist camp and didn't know what hit him when Ben Gavir's popularity began to rise. Smotrich represented the settler contingency, a highly organized electoral bloc. He felt Israel has mandatory conscription. You'd imagine a society like that to have people who are more patriotic. Where does Tel Aviv get all this liberalism from? Well, Tel Aviv's elites are Ashkenazi and left-wing and university-educated. So Ashkenazi Jews are European Jews, and they tend to get a lot of university education, and they tend to have pretty similar perspectives on life as, say, Anglicans, who have similar levels of IQ and education. So once you account for IQ or once you account for levels of university education, you know, Jewish liberal and left-wing attitudes pretty much match the same perspectives among, say, non-Jewish whites who have similar levels of IQ and education. Crombie said that Ben Gavir dragged him to the fringes of society. Imagine a union of the Tea Party and the Proud Boys. According to data from the Israel Democracy Institute, collected shortly after the election, 78% of the alliance's voters said that they preferred Ben Gavir to Smotrich. Netanyahu might have felt the same. Yossi Verter, a columnist for Haaretz, wrote in November that Netanyahu had less to worry about with Ben Gavir, the pyromaniac, than with Smotrich, the megalomaniac. A U.S. official said that the Biden administration was not engaging with Ben Gavir, hoping that Netanyahu could manage him. On a popular sketch comedy show, Ben Gavir is presented as an amiable klutz. You have two options with extremists like him. Omri Marcus, a former writer for the show, told me. So do the conservatives in Israel tend to be Sephardic, Mizrahi, and Russian? Yes. Him as a teddy bear or as a super scary fanatic. The decision was clear. Ben Gavir was the teddy bear, Smotrich the fanatic. Kariv, who tracked both men's activities during the early 2000s, broadly agreed with that depiction. He posited an index of threats, borrowed from one maintained by the Shin Bet department that handles non-Arab terrorism, in which such... So Jews in the United States tend to be about 95% Ashkenazi. So Jews in Israel tend to have the same sort of views as Jews in the United States when you account for whether they're Ashkenazi, Sephardic, or Mizrahi. So you have a few Mizrahi and Sephardic Jews, uh, Russian Jews in the United States, right? And they tend to be more centrist or even conservative and right-wing 
in politics. Ashkenazi Jews in the United States and in Israel tend to be left-wing. It's just that Ashkenazi Jews account for about 95% of Jews in the United States, and they account for approximately 40, 40%, 50%, 50% or so of Jews in Israel. So that's why Israeli Jews have a more right-wing tilt right, than American Jews, because Israeli Jews have a much higher proportion of Sephardic and Mizrahi and Russian Jews. Is damaging holy sites and mounting terror attacks on Palestinians are at the top of a scale from one to ten. By that measure, he said, Ben Gavir was a three, Smotrich a seven. In 2005, following years of deadly attacks by Palestinian militants in Gaza, the government of Ariel Sharon, an otherwise hawkish prime minister, unilaterally pulled out of the Gaza Strip. For Jewish settlers who believe in Israel's divine right to rule from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, the move was a calamity. Yet most responded to the evacuation of settlements with little violence. The big debate then among the rabbis was whether to be removed like a sack of potatoes or like a bag of fish, kicking and squirming, Kareev said. Still, according to security officials, a small cell of hardcore settlers plotted acts of sedition. Smotrich allegedly belonged to that cell. That August, Kareev led an operation in which special forces arrested Smotrich, along with four other suspects, in a house near Patah Tikva. They had jerrycans full of gasoline and burned oil from nearby garages. Kareev. So, yeah, if you're plotting to violently oppose the policies and actions and laws of your government, right, that's uh, usually not going to work out well for you. Told me. He wouldn't specify what their plan had been, but Yitzhak Ilan, who had overseen the interrogation of Smotrich, said in 2019 that the group intended to torch cars along a Tel Aviv highway. Smotrich, who declined to be interviewed for this article, denies the allegations. A spokesman said that he was arrested for organizing a demonstration and for blocking roads and was released without charges. Ilan died in 2020. In the end, the Shin Bet chose not to bring the case to court, for fear of exposing the agency's intelligence-gathering methods. Meanwhile, Ben-Gavir tried to join the settlers of Gaza before the evacuation. But according to Sadeh, who was part of his entourage for the trip, the settlers considered the Kahanists rabble-rousers and agitators. They turned the sprinklers on us, he said. As the evacuation became imminent, the group, which included Ben-Gavir, his wife, and Bensi Gopstein, took over an abandoned Jewish-owned hotel on the Gazan shore and squatted there for several months. By the empty pool, they spray-painted death to the Arabs. In the coming weeks, they were joined by sympathizers until there were 150 squatters clustered around the hotel. Finally, the police raided the building in a sprawling operation that involved 600 officers. Ben-Gavir and Ayala were nowhere to be found, according to Sadeh. They had gone shopping two hours earlier, he told me. It wasn't the only time that Ben-Gavir disappeared at a critical juncture, he said. In his view, this raised the possibility that Ben-Gavir had cooperated with the Shin Bet and been tipped off about the raid. For years, Ben-Gavir has denied rumors about collaborating with the Shin Bet. In a Knesset session in 1999 regarding the activities of Shin Bet agents, a right-wing legislator named Benny Elon read aloud from the commission's interview with Yigal Amir, Rabin's assassin. 
So it sounds a lot like uh, alt-right concerns about who's a Fed, who's cooperating with the Feds, right? This is a common concern among dissident movements because there is such you know, considerable incentive for individuals in the dissident movement to cooperate with above-ground polite society. And uh, a lot of suspicion that Itamar Ben-Gavir has done just this. In which Amir mentions that Ben-Gavir was said to want to kill Rabin himself. Elon sought reassurance from the state that the Shin Bet was not deploying provocateur agents. After Rabin's murder, the Shin Bet revealed that it had deployed at least one agent among the far right. Avishai Raviv, who went by the codename Champagne. In 2019, the former defense minister Avigdor Lieberman spoke in a radio interview about Ben Gavir's party. Lieberman, a right-winger who had emigrated from the former Soviet Union, mused, Is Itamar Ben Gavir what he presents himself to be, or a kind of new champagne? He concluded, So yeah, whenever you have uh, you know, right-wing dissident leaders, and uh, they managed to avoid arrest, they managed to you know, avoid total destruction, then their followers and their competitors increasingly question, hey, are these guys feds? What party do the Ethiopian Israelis tend to vote for? Any data on that? I, I'm sure there is. I don't know. I would suspect that they would vote for the left-wing Labour Party or some other left-wing party that promises lots of social welfare spending. I'm not sure at all. Ben Gavir promptly sued him, saying, If I'm a Shabak agent, then Lieberman's a KGB agent. Lieberman claimed parliamentary immunity. I asked Kariv whether the rumors about Ben Gavir's involvement with the Shin Bet had any merit. Even off the record, I wouldn't tell you if it was or wasn't true, he said. I mentioned Lieberman's radio interview and noted, A defense minister insinuated this. And the wife of a prime minister, Kariv volunteered. In 2020, while Naftali Bennett was serving as defense minister, his wife, Gilat, wrote on Facebook that her home had been broken into and claimed that Jewish power activists were responsible. Ben Gavir sued her for libel. Four months later, she issued a detailed statement in which she wrote, Although Ben Gavir presents a veneer of a right-wing extremist, he had served for many years as an agent for the Shin Bet, with the goal of gathering information on extreme right-wing activists and besmirching the rightist camp with provocations. Bennett did not disclose how she got that information. Her family declined to comment for this article. Okay, I think I'll leave it there for today. Take care. Bye-bye.